Sinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And Cody, after coming off a, a dizzying trade deadline week where we, we talked about it last episode, the balance of power is potentially shifted in the NBA. All the All-Stars play in the Western Conference now. Um, we We were talking after that show and got a lot of comments from people about our reaction to the Kevin Durant trade to the Suns and specifically my take that that or my feelings that Phoenix didn't give up enough that it was kind of an underpay if you will and the thing I was really focused on was the players the players moved in that trade so today with the all-star break coming up and um, the all-star selections just being finalized and things like that. We do want to talk about some alternative awards to give to players. We do want to get into some NBA superlatives, if you will. We'll talk about that later in the show. But to start with, we really wanted to revisit this idea of like trading draft picks and why I actually don't think that's valuable or that why that's not necessarily that valuable in some instances. And one of those instances was the Durant trade with the sun. So, so that's where we kind of have some work to do to start today's show. Okay. Because you, you talk about the player side of it. I feel like the, the reasoning that some people might have that it was a much more fair trade that you might think is how other people value the players that were traded, specifically Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson. I think Mikhail Bridges is kind of like this. People are like, now that he's going to be unleashed, people are going to see this is the real Mikhail Bridges. But I don't necessarily think that that you think that way. He didn't come up as an actual all-star in our conversation. Is that sort of where you think the disconnect is coming from? I think the first disconnect is historically when you trade an MVP level player, it's very hard to get equal value. So teams are trying to recoup value. Teams are trying to get 40, 50, 60 cents on the dollar. And it's a miracle if you can swing something that's relatively comparable. We'll talk about maybe one instance where that happened. But historically, if you look at some of those MVPs that were traded last time that we talked about, Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Moses Malone, Charles Barkley, Shaquille O'Neal, Kevin Garnett, when you look at those rare instances where guys at that level are moved around, there's usually at least an all-star. And I've actually talked about this, how it's very rare for NBA GMs to ever trade two all-stars for an MVP, which suggests that teams do value all-star seasons pretty highly. You know, sometimes you get into these debates historically and they're like, I don't care that Tim Duncan made the all-star team in his 14th year. It's like all-stars are really good. GMs don't just move all-stars willy-nilly in these kind of deals but typically let's take Charles Barkley when he was traded in 1993 Jeff Hornacek was the all-star that was part of that deal when Shaquille O'Neal was traded in 2004 you had Lamar Odom and Karan Butler Lamar was young I think there was some hope that he would make an all-star team I think he's one of the best players ever never to make an all-star team we talked about that in our sub all-star podcast recently and then Karan Butler in that trade made two all-star teams Kevin Garnett's trade, Al Jefferson was supposed to be the all-star piece, plus all the draft picks, plus all the Celtics' young, sort of talented players that could develop into something. By the way, uh, it's rare for a group of young players to all develop into anything good, so the Celtics' young core didn't really turn into too much, as you might expect. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar 
even back when he when he didn't want to be in Milwaukee, right? Similar kind of situation way back in the day. There was no true free agency in 1975, and yet Kareem said, I want to be somewhere else. They move into the Lakers. Who do you get back in that trade? You get Brian Winters and Elmore Smith, who led the league in blocks, and Junior Bridgman, who was like a 20-point-per-game scorer. I think Winters may have made a couple all-star teams from that group. So it's very, very rare to have these trades without actual um, talent, not picks, actual players on the teams leaving or not being exchanged for another all-star type of player. And I think one of the reasons that's so key for me in this trade is that the less the Suns give up on their current roster, the less valuable the picks are. Let me say that again. The less the Suns that give, give up in their current roster, the less valuable their picks are because they're going to be better. And that's the whole rub with giving away an MVP level player and then being like, give me your picks for the next couple seasons. Because as we'll talk about in a second, Cody, historically, those picks aren't that valuable. That's the part of the conversation that I'm most interested in. Because we were we were kind of like tossing about some ideas about the economy of what a first-round pick is. And honestly, you sent some really interesting stuff that we'll get to in a second. But what blows my mind, Ben, when we go back and you look at some of these trades, you know, the Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem especially stand out to me. If I'm not mistaken, neither of these guys had a first-round pick involved with their trades. Like, Wilt Chamberlain had a couple players and some cash. Kareem, no trade. Like, these are two guys that ended up in the top 10 players ever in your list. And they didn't have any picks at all. So it's interesting how, like, it seems like the value has shifted from being like, here are the all-star players we're including, to like, eh, let's take a little bit off of the players we're trading and we'll replace it with these first-round picks. But Ben, do you think that actually, does that math work out in in terms of the, the teams that are actually getting the first-round picks in these trades? I don't think it always does, and, and we'll we'll get to the actual numbers of it in a second. But to your point, it, there might have been some differences in collective bargaining agreement things and rules around trading draft picks. But just in general, it wasn't that popular to try to trade away a bunch of draft picks all the time in these instances. And so you go back and you see like Charles Barkley, you know, he's traded for Hornacek and a couple other players. I don't think there was a pick in that trade, right? I think it was just Charles Barkley and two rotation players, Andrew Lang and uh, Tim Perry, did we say was the third play? Anyway, some some rotation player from the 90s that's obsolete now, but uh, you don't, you might see in the 2000s a first round pick thrown in there. You might see a second occasionally, but I was going back and looking through this and it's really hard to find multiple first round picks as part of the selling point to try to recoup value until maybe like the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, even that even that Kevin Garnett trade, Cody, only had two first-round picks from the Celtics heading out to Minnesota. And much to the point here, that 2009 first-round pick, the, the year after they got Garnett, that was the 28th pick in the draft because when you add Kevin Garnett to your team, you're really good. And so even though he got injured that year and he couldn't make it through the playoffs and whatnot, like they were a 60-win team and you finished near the top of the league and all of a sudden that first-round pick, you can call it unprotected all you want, but you don't need protections when the pick is the 28th pick in the draft and it's actually closer 
to a second round pick. We'll get to some more data in a second, but that's the theme. The theme is you pick up an MVP and you're going to be good for a couple years. So let's think about Phoenix in this example. Like the idea, obviously, Chris Paul's not going to play forever, right? We're seeing him kind of go on a down, uh, that, downward spiral. That's what you think. Yeah, yeah, maybe Cliff Paul could come in and take over for him <laughs> with some good insurance. Cliffhanger Paul is going to scale the cliff and, and he'll be back to it soon enough. But like Kevin Durant, we talked about him recently as like he might age one of the he might be one of the best aging players of all time. Like we're, we have yet to see it. Devin Booker, he's not particularly old yet. So like in the next few years, are we reasonably going to see Phoenix even in the lottery, right? Like if you would say in each year that they're going to have a pick that's better than 15, I, I don't know if I would take that bet. Like I think unless some kind of catastrophe strikes them, they should be in the, the upper teens or the 20s for the foreseeable future. And I, I don't know when it comes to the crapshoot of the draft, that doesn't really yield great results just off the top of my head. So the Suns get picks for six years. So what I tried to do, Cody, is I tried to go back in the last 15 seasons, starting with this Garnett trade, and then looking at the other big blockbuster trades for high-level players. I'm including Darren Williams. I'm including Steve Nash. I'm including Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett going out to Mil- uh, out to Brooklyn in 2014 because these are instances where the buyer gave away multiple first-round picks. So we all know how many picks the Nets gave to the Celtics, but the Nets also got first round picks when uh, Darren Williams, excuse me, the Jazz got first round picks when they did the Darren Williams trade with the Nets. The Lakers, when they acquired Steve Nash from the Suns, gave away multiple first round picks. So there's about a dozen or so of these deals with big name players, some smaller name players. For instance, in 2015, Timothy Mozgov was a trade deadline acquisition from Cleveland. They gave up multiple first round picks. And what I did, Cody, was... I went back, I didn't change the trade at all, but I just said, let's look at trades where people are paying for talent that's going to be there and help the team immediately. Garnett's going to help the team. Darren Williams is going to help the team. Andre Iguodala is going to help the team. Chris uh, Tapps Porzingis had a deal like this. Chris Paul in 2012 for the Clippers. I want to look at these deals, and then I want to add something comparable to four first-round picks that the Suns just got extending out six years. So for instance, the Celtics, if you look at their picks extending out six years, we talked about the 2009 pick being the 28th pick. That 2011 pick, if it was part of the trade in the same structure that the Suns just made this deal, would be the 25th pick for the Timberwolves at at the time of that trade. The 2013 pick for the Celtics would have been the 16th pick. And if you keep going, 2015, it would have been the the 16th pick. So you can do this with all of these trades, okay? And then you can say, well, what's the average first round draft pick going out four years, every, going out six years and four picks every time to mimic the Suns str- trade structure that we just saw with the Nets? You want to take a guess at what the, the average position of the first round pick is? Man, just looking at the numbers you gave me, 17 17 is spot on did i tell you that hey, earlier i don't know maybe well, that's an amazing did. guess <laughs> i was just trying to like you gave me two 16s to the 25th i'm like i don't know maybe this is how all of the picks go so 17 sounded right basically every once in a while the picks turn into something that we think of as like oh the nets and the celtics in 2014 and i think 
that trade illustrates exactly the point, which is that when you bring in aging stars who are done and Pierce and Garnett looked like they were at the end, they had a six-year run together in Boston, which was longer than anyone thought it was going to be, and they were already very, very old, very, very old. Um, The minutes couldn't be the same. The competitiveness wasn't the same. Ray Allen had already left to go to Miami the year before, and he was coming off the bench there. So the writing was on the wall, and the Nets make this trade, and it kind of the team isn't very good. So what ends up happening is and you when you go forward with those picks with the Nets, 2016, it's the third pick. 2017, it's the first pick. 2018, it's the eighth pick. The only similar situation was the Lakers, where Steve Nash might have been too old. Dwight Howard had the back injury and then left. Kobe Bryant had the Achilles. And so now that team falls apart, and the Lakers picks that they traded out, if you project forward ultimately end up being the seventh pick in 2015 and the second pick in 2017, which was Brandon Ingram. So there are times, Cody, where you like get these hits when you make these trades into the future and you're like, oh, sweet, I own this team's draft capital for the next four years and they look terrible. But most of the time, the team isn't terrible. That's the issue. And we looked at basketball references VORP stat, everyone's favorite, VORP, value, is not an, is not an alien from a funny, from funny planet, uh, value over replacement player. And I calculated the value of the star. So I didn't even look at any other players in the trade, just the star of the trade. And I compared that to the value of all the picks that has materialized so far up through 2023. And the, the takeaway is, that the VORP of the star is about double the value of all of the picks if you projected, if you gave them four first-round picks. So these this didn't even really happen in real life. I'm just saying, like, you, you get extra first-round picks, and then I went and looked at the value of those first-round picks because the second part of cashing in on the first-round pick, Cody, is if you have, like, the 14th pick in the draft... And it's a good, you can't just automatically say, well, we would have taken Kawhi Leonard and Draymond Green and Nikola Jokic. You have to look, it's very hard to actually hit a player that converts outside of having like a top three or top five pick. So historically, that's why in these situations, the unprotectedness of the first round pick almost doesn't even matter. And for me, I would have much rather seen Phoenix uh, keep their pick this year, maybe keep their pick in two years and get another player or get a third team involved where you can get more players or more help or a draft pick from a team that doesn't have Kevin Durant and Devin Booker on it. So to say this back to you, and for those of you who don't know, and I'm pretty sure this is the case, I haven't looked at the description for a while, but I'm pretty sure VORP is like their box plus minus model extended out as to how many minutes a player played throughout a season. So it's basically looking at the impact that a player has in a specific season in the actual minutes that they play. So that the more that they play with a higher box plus minus, the higher their VORP. You're saying that the actual literal value of the players that are picked from those picks is half that of the major star, of the first star that is traded. Is that right? Yeah, I just looked at the star. (laughs) I just looked at the star's VORP from the year after he was traded. And then I just looked at the player's VORP from the time they've come into the league, these draft picks as they actualize into players and whatnot. And so all of them, their careers aren't done because I stopped really looking at about 2019, 2020. So some of them are only in their third or fourth year. But newsflash, there just aren't a lot of good players. 
Uh, we tried to go through the list the other the other day and just call out good players, and there just weren't that many. And so what you end up with is like take the 2012 Clippers. They get Chris Paul. Uh, you get a ton of like all NBA MVP level seasons from Chris Paul, and the Clippers theoretically could have kept him in perpetuity. They end up moving him when it suits them on contracts, you know, when the team falls apart six years later or whatever. But if I did the same exercise with the Clippers, they would have given away a 2012 first round pick. It would have been 10th. 2014 would have been 28th. 2016 would have been 25th. 2018, the year they finally didn't have Chris Paul, would have been 13th. And then you look at the players who were picked in those slots and their their total career VORP was negative 5.5. And Chris Paul is, you know, working on how how much how much VORP at this point. So you're making a stunned face, but the point is, it's actually rare to really cash in the way we think of those teams when you're putting a player on a team like Kevin Durant on a team. You're just not going to be in the lottery, right? And so I, as I said the other day, in this particular instance, I fully expect the first two picks in that trade forget needing protections i just don't even think they're going to be particularly good like i think we're talking about you know drafting jacob evans if you're the warriors or that kind of thing uh, it's just hard to pick up really good players that are even going to get in the same universe as an mvp which is why for me cody i still feel like if you're going to try to make one of these trades and, and the Suns didn't have to do this. I mean, the Nets didn't have to do this now. They could have waited until the offseason when there were more buyers in the market. I feel like you you want to actually get players who have actualized into good NBA players because it's really hard to draft and develop all-star players. So why, why do you think there's been this shift with GMs of trading, not first round, of, of going from trading specifically players, maybe cash in some points, to shifting that value, quote unquote, to the first round picks that are shipped out. Is it like a, a saving face with the public? Because the fact of the matter is, when you look at these players that like Wilt and Kareem were traded for, it's what, like 40 cents of the dollar? Like all of these trades, the team that's trading away the megastar is is bleeding value, like in almost in every case, right? And so is this kind of like a you can save face with the public like, oh, it's OK, because these picks are still out there. And remember, Giannis was picked 15th, so we still might land Giannis, even if it's not a pit, top pick. Is that kind of the psychology or the, the reasons you think behind doing this? Analytics. Analytics just ruins everything. <laughs> I think that's what it is. No, I think from a psychological perspective, selling hope is always a nice thing to sell. So that's 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 a really good perspective. Uh, I think. The nature of the competitive cycle has changed a little bit. I'm only half joking when I say analytics because I think I think if you step back as a GM and you think about the strategies you can employ for teams in basketball, one season is like a single round of a board game or something. So sometimes in your in your in your season that you're playing right now, you need to position yourself for later rounds. And I feel like most markets and most GMs are trying to figure out how to not get stuck in perpetuity like the Washington Wizards forever and how to rebuild, recycle, reposition, when to sell, when to buy, when to develop. And so you get a greater churn in my head when you do that. There's more rapid like, okay, we're not going to be we're not going to be uh, part of the guys at the dance right now. We got to re. We got to regroup. We got to go home. We got to shower off. We got to get a new outfit. We got to figure out how to get back 
in that uh, inner inner circle dance at the end of the season. So I think there's a lot of that. Um, and then the last thing I would say is it does feel like that 2014 trade with the Celtics and the Nets, where the Celtics just had this quote-unquote treasure chest of draft assets afterwards, it feels like it's very easy to sell people on that being the norm when you make one of these trades. When the reality is when you're trading players to teams that are really good, like even Timofey Mozgov going to the Cavs in 2015, the reason why that trade is being made where multiple first-round picks are being sold out is because the Cavs are title contenders and they're playing to win now and selling off a little of the future. And when you do that, what were what were the picks that conveyed there? 2016, it was the 26th pick. 2017, if we keep playing the game, would be the 20th pick. 2018, 25th pick. And then in 2020, with that LeBron Cavs team, he's no longer there, you would finally get the fifth pick. I think that's a more realistic representation of what happens when you're trading with a championship level team and contender and a team that we have no reason to think won't also be very good in two years. And I think that's it takes us to the Harden trade to Brooklyn, because I think when we were going through this exercise and talking about it a little bit, that might be the only trade of like a star that seems closer to a not a dollar for to- dollar exactly, but when you look at the the in the context of these historical trades, it seems to actually kind of be the most fair to the team that is uh, that is receiving or trading away the superstar. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I know they trade away Jared Allen. Um, can't load the page, but the internet, the internet's just not letting me do not letting me do my job. But they get they trade away Jared Allen. I think there's like multiple first round picks involved with that. I don't re- remember what other players are involved, but uh, it seemed to be the most fair of the ones that we've talked about. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 rare to get even what feels like fifty or sixty cents on the dollar, and that one uh, I think ended up actually being much more comparable uh, with the outlier of the bunch. Okay. Let's move on to something we've wanted to do for a while. Uh, The All-Star Game is approaching, and a lot of times, on this show included, we spend time talking about players who are the best passers and um, the best. We did did the best shooters of all time, outside shooters of all time, and hopefully at some point we'll get to the best rim finishers of all time. These, These really big categories. At the end of the season, one of my favorite episodes that we do is the defensive awards the thinking basketball defensive awards and we again break up these like really big categories best rim protector uh, best nail defender best screen navigator but we wanted to do something that's a little more off the beaten path to not only acknowledge some of these players but maybe the next time you're watching your team a big game on national TV or one of these players, you might notice or, or cue into this kind of skill that they have that's not that talked about. That's, that's not something that's on the marquee or headlining, uh, you know, headlining headlines is what I was going to say. Isn't that what it's called when you have an article and it has a thing at the top? The headline, right? Yeah, I, think, I don't know if I've heard of the headlining headline, but I'm going to go with it, Ben. Yeah, just, just roll with it. That's a yeah. totally normal human <laughs> sentence to put together. Uh, so, so, so that's the goal here today. We don't know how many categories we're going to get to, but we, we are definitely going to talk about things um, that aren't, aren't always discussed as skill sets. And with the caveat that we tried to do our best to nominate and pick players we think exemplify these superlatives, but 
when you get into these this level of things, it's like I was thinking to myself, Cody, right before I was like, man, I hope there's no one on the San Antonio Spurs who's really amazing at this because I don't think I've seen the Spurs play in like three months. I was going to say, there were a couple categories that when you put them up there, you, you immediately put down a couple of names, and I looked at it, and I'm like, yeah, those are the first names <laughs> yeah, that would come to that mind. That sounds and reasonable. I, th- there's no way of like really quickly going back in and being like, hmm, how can I double-check these? Because there's, there's usually some good heuristics you can use and run to like figure out who's in these, but some of these are pretty uh, esoteric, we can say, and it's just going to take like, yeah, I've, I've seen them do this a few times, and it seems like they're effective. All right, where would you like to start? You, I'll, I'll let you pick the category here to to sort of kick us off where would you like to start you you want to you want to start with something uh a little a little lighter something a little more fun here ben yeah let's start with lighter because i think we're gonna get (laughs) i think we're gonna get pretty hardcore at a certain point um so yeah pick 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 a light one to kick us off so I think the challenge with this was actually coming up with some good categories. And I think you talked me down from a couple of them because I got I got a little bit out there with them. But this one, Ben, is my favorite one. It's the best non-shooting guards in the NBA. The best non-shooting guards in the NBA. So basically guards who aren't good shooters but are still good. They have some impact on their team. The thing that fascinates me about this category well frankly i was fascinated by all the categories you attempted to to come up with uh, but this one's fascinating because am i correct in saying that when you started filtering for shooting you only ended up with six six players to look at here is that correct yeah and then i think you threw one of them out as not actually a guard and the other one ended up not actually fitting so i think so there's four only players. four players okay so so the thing i thought was so cool about this is has anyone just stopped and paused and realized there are no guards left in basketball that can't shoot, right? Like like the the Brevin Knight, maybe that's too far back for people. Even even Rajon Rondo, of course Rondo had to be a great passer and have a defensive reputation, but just this idea of like let's just draft players and they can't shoot uh, if they're guards, it it doesn't really seem to exist anymore, right? Yeah, and even if a player's not a good shooter, their volume of shooting is is still up there. Like, they shoot like they're a good shooter, so it kind of takes them out of this. These are the players that aren't good shooters who are guards that know they're not good shooters and take advantage of their other skills. Okay, so you're saying that someone like Russell Westbrook, whose shooting percentages are really low, um, you're not even necessarily thinking of him because no. he's still shooting. These are players who <laughs> succeed as guards without shooting threes in the NBA. Yeah, that's exactly it. Okay, and they don't sh- and when they do they're not shooting at a good percentage. Who is it? Do we have any all-stars? So I I picked <laughs> I made this because I wanted to talk about one player Ben and that player is Markel Fultz. Okay. All right. I can see that. I can see Markel Fultz being here. What what do you want to say? So Markel Fultz is your unofficial best non-shooting shooting guard in in the NBA. <laughs> Absolutely. The Markel Fultz experience to me is one of the most fun in the NBA. Like there's he's such an interesting combination of just limbs all over the place. He's got like pretty incredible athleticism, right? All of a sudden he's just like hanging out near the basket and he's like, oh, I'm going to try and put back dunk this. I think recently, uh, I forgot what game it was. It was. I think it was in the Nuggets. He just missed two put back dunks. He's like, I, this guy's just going for it. He's got a high motor. He's really, when we talk about players that are good at catching and immediately just driving, that's him. Players are still closing out on him like he's going to pull up and shoot. Nope, he has no intention of doing that. He's going to slice his way into the, into the paint and, you know, he's starting to show off a little bit of a pull-up jumper in the mid-range. I don't think it's super 
effective. But when he gets all the way to the basket, he's long enough, he's athletic enough that he can do some stuff, and he's an interesting passer. And all of that also combines with this fun defensive player that sometimes he's just like hounding players, like switches on to Jokic and disrupts a pass to him and hunts down MPJ to to steal it and throw it down on the fast break. And he's just so cool and so much fun. I I don't want to sour the mood by getting too negative because you know the spirit of this show is uh is to celebrate some of these guys and some of the think about some of these other skills that we don't think about a lot in the league but how you know i know you love the magic cody but how how good is markel full if he's the best guard in basketball right now who can't really shoot uh how good is he um, I mean, I, th- I think that's a question that I don't necessarily want to answer truthfully right okay, now. Okay, okay. Because right. when we're looking at the Magic, um, what, they have a negative 2.8 net rating over the season. And I don't know how that works out, seeing as Bancaro is probably an all-NBA player. Wagner is like an MVP-level player. Markel Fultz is like a, like a, uh, like a <laughs> all-star. Wendell Carter Jr. is secretly also an all-NBA player. I the thought he was defensive player of the year. Yeah. yeah, that's where he gets his all-NBA value. So when you put it all together, I don't understand why they're not better. Okay, that that makes sense. Um, let's go to I'll I'll pick one. First no thing first thing Thanks. I thought of when we were when we were doing this category. I think it's time to get serious. Let's mm. do a serious. Can we do a serious one? Let's get serious, Ben. All right. Let's talk about the best screen rejectors Ooh. in the NBA. These are the players. I'm thinking of ball handlers, although technically you could do it off ball, but these are the guys who have the ball and the screen is there for them, and they're using the screen by going around it in both directions. So you can accept the screen and go in the direction of the screen, or you can reject the screen and go in the other direction. And there's just a couple masters in the league at setting people up. Looks like you're going to use the screen and go one way. Bam! Cut back the other way, crossover, ankle breaker, and all of a sudden you've got all this real estate to work with. Uh... Do you have before I before I start going crazy? Do you have any guys that immediately come to mind or or people you want to mention on this category? There is a player that comes to mind because I think he does it differently. There's maybe one other player he's kind of similar to, but Jalen Brunson, first player that comes to mind on this, and I think Jalen Brunson is extremely quick. Right when we talk about maybe like. Ja Morant, he doesn't quite have that kind of explosiveness, but this is a really quick player. But the thing that Jalen Brunson does that I really like is let's say that a player is set up to force him to go to pick a side of a, of a screen. He's so good at just kind of throwing himself into that defender and pushing his way to get to the direction of the screen that he wants. So I think the physicality that he brings when he's going against good uh, pick and roll defense is what sort of separates him in my mind compared to other players. The use of the head fake. The use of the turning of the shoulders and then all of a sudden blowing blowing by in the other direction. The hesitation slowing down his body. This is the magic, Cody. This is the mastery that we're talking about. I'm not sure how many guys do it better than him. When you add in the fact that he's a southpaw, that seems to throw people, you know, come down early transition, look like you're going to stop. Here comes a drag screen. I'm going to use the screen. No, I reject the screen. I go into open space. I'm not sure how many do it better. Uh, Let me throw out a few more names in this category. Steph Curry is pretty good at this. Uh, John Morant is also quite good at this. Luka Doncic knows how to do this very well. 
And then you get to a guy like Trey Young, also so, so good. He, he in particular, I don't know if he has quite the full bag that Brunson uses, but Trey really likes the crossover. So he really likes that, like, right to left. The, the screen is on my right. I'm using the screen. Bam, cross back over and reject it that way. Creates space. He'll take the pull-up shot uh, or try to get downhill that way. He's really good at it. For me, Cody, this came down to two players. If I had to pick a winner in this category, those two players are Donovan Mitchell, if you go back and look at his 71-point game that I did a video on earlier in this season, it's just rejection after rejection. So quick, so low to the ground. Amazing change of direction from him that we've talked about before. And he's really prolific. He's really sort of a, a volume screen rejector, if you will, at going the other way. And it's to me, it's between Mitchell, and I think I'm going to give it to this. I, th- I think I'm going to give it to Jalen Brunson. Oh, you I, are going to give it I, to I him. I do. I think everything he does that we just talked about, I think if I had to pick one, I think he uses this technique more and gets more out of it than anyone else in the league. So the thing about, let's say, Brunson, Mitchell, even Luka, these are three guys that are strong. They're physical. They can use their center of gravity to kind of make that space, as opposed to like Trey Young, who, you know, he's very slippery with his movements. He's got a he's got the ball on a string, but he's not necessarily going to out outpower somebody in this. He can't necessarily throw his body quite as well. And I think John Morant is also pretty good at, at getting players on his backside and sort of dribbling around and making some space there. But again, he just doesn't have the strength. Like Mitchell is, is one of these really physical individuals that's good at using his athleticism that way. So... Um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with those two guys. All right, now that we've nerded out, uh, let, let's pass it back to you. Where, what's our next category? So now that you said, now that we nerded out, are, are you applying the, the categories I came up with are, are less nerding out, Ben? Is that what no, you want me to no, do? No, I was saying we started with we started with a simple fun one with the with the shooters, and then we got really in. Look, we're always we're always nerding out. Where do you where do you want to go? Where do you want to do? You want to go to a, a less nerdy one, or you want to go to what do you, you pick? You set the mood for us. Okay. I'm still going to keep a little light here at the beginning, Ben. I'm going to go back and forth with this. Best in-game dunker. All right. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> Who comes to mind for this right away? Uh, Jeff Green. Oh. Comes to mind. Uh, Uncle Jeff with some, with some throwdowns all the time. He definitely comes to mind. Um, Anthony Edwards, I think, has had hmm. some had some monster dunks that that come to mind that's another I'll I'll throw a a lesser known name out there because I know a a lot of people aren't binging Houston Rockets games these days Kenyon Martin Jr. Mm -hmm. pretty pretty nasty in-game dunker um who who else you got so here's the thing when it comes to best in-game dunker you have to think about a couple of things number one is it actually a viable option for this player? Are they getting it a lot? Is it part of their actual repertoire or are they just a lot of style? And then of course, are they adding a little bit of flair to it? And Kenyon Martin Jr., I wanted to have him higher at first because when this guy takes off, I mean, this is one of the most ferocious dunkers in the NBA. I'm talking like back scratcher over people kind of thing, but he doesn't give me enough sauce beyond that, right? A lot of his dunks are pretty, are pretty just getting up high and throwing it down hard, right? You know who always gives a little bit more sauce than that is necessary, and I appreciate him for it? Aaron Gordon. 
Aaron Gordon is, I mean, you get a, a nice little dump off pass from Jokic. He's just going to give you a nice little reverse. He doesn't need to reverse it. He can just go straight up and throw it down. Nope. He's going to give you a little reverse. The dunk on Shamit, Ben, I didn't know until LeBron that we were allowed to stop a game for 15 minutes to celebrate it. That should have happened when he dunked on Landry Shamit the other day. I know the game stopped because they had to review it, but when he dunked on Landry Shamit, we should have like brought out Vince Carter to give him a hug at center court. There should have been an award. They should have created a banner to hang right away. Like That needs to happen more. I So Aaron Gordon to me is the king of this category. Aaron Gordon is your pick here. Um, yeah. All right. I, I, I can buy that. Yeah. I, can, I can definitely buy that. Uh, I'm trying to think of any other, any other, I, sometimes with these categories, you get nervous that you're mm. just like completely blanking on a mega in-game dunker. Um, and then of course the guys that like serve up facials, like we talked about the, the Lauer marketing special. He's always trying to dunk on people's mm-hmm. heads when he's big Sabonis. Um, I think the other guy for me that comes to mind, especially as weaponizing the dunk, maybe more than anyone these days is, is Giannis. I mean, yeah. the limbs, the the arboreal length, the, the just the the ant like quality. Yes, I said arboreal. <laughs> um, he's uh, he would be up there for me as well. Yeah, he's another big time poster guy. Like I think against the Pacers recently, he he just compl- like he contorts his body around O'Shea Brissett. Like Brissett tries to draw a foul, and he's kind of like twisting around him and just gets his hip in there, and he's able to like space jam reach it and throw it down. But something else I appreciate about Giannis, he gets on the fast break windmill. Ben he gives you a nice little windmill once in a while, and then and if you can do that, like I think even like. Matherin recently threw down a windmill in transition. We don't see that enough, Ben. People are too economical about their dunks. Give us, give us a little bit of sauce once in a while, and I'll leave a happy and full man. So I'm thinking of Zion Williamson here. He's not he's not on the radar for you. Wow. You want to talk about players who you just straight up missed? <laughs> I, oh, did you oh did you forget him? I didn't even think about Zion. I haven't seen him play in so long that I just he wasn't on my radar. But yeah, he's absolutely on this list. He's always on my mind. I, yeah. You say windmill, I think of Zion. All right, how about how about another? Yeah, I got to get another guy in here because I I I think he's got some of the best in-game dunks. Uh, John Morant. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The thing about John Morant though is he just doesn't have the volume of some of these guys. I I think like Giannis and Gordon have dunked like three times more than him, but I think Ja, ja is probably like the showstopper dunker in the NBA, like when he has a spectacular dunk, it's probably peak in the NBA at the moment. I think Anthony Edwards is probably right there with him, but uh, yeah, I think he's got to get in just for that. I think I would have gone Levine if we did last year mm-hmm. when he was healthy. Um, Paolo Boncaro's had some nice dunks as well. He's a, he's an enormous human being. How, how about a rookie? I'll need to throw a rookie out there. What about um, Sharp in Portland? Why am I blanking oh. on his first? Shaden? Shaden? Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, he he looks like, does he, do they put springs in the floor in that arena? That guy has hops. Listen, he backed out of the dunk contest. I'm a little hurt by this. No, I, did he really? I, he, I, I'm pretty sure he backed out of the dunk contest. Oh, wow. We should like probably stop the show and recover. <laughs> I... <laughs> This is a tragedy. It is. I mean, he's one of those guys that when he jumps, he keeps going up. And like even like the missed dunks, he's still just like hanging in the air. I, it's it's truly because I think uh, who's the the Sims character from from the Knicks? What's his first name? Some Jericho. Jericho. Jericho Sims. Yeah, yeah. I think he took his spot. Sometimes you have references 
like you'll say Pokemon. I have no idea what's going on. And you said the Sims character, and I was like, oh no, I'm gonna have to tell Cody I never played the Sims. Um, but you weren't referring to the Nintendo game. I wasn't. That's that, why I had to throw in his first name. It was is that it a was Nintendo not, game? No, it wasn't. It was definitely a, a, a PC game. A PC game. Okay. Yeah. Close. I mean, Nintendo's just everything. That's like a very 2001 way to refer to video games. <laughs> video, video games. You're playing Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Anyone else in this category? Um, let me look at my list. I think, I think, I guess John Collins throws down some good, there's a bunch of good dunkers out there, but I think those are the key ones I want to talk about. John Collins also, it feels like heavily lob, mm-hmm. like heavily, heavily on the lob receiving end of his dunks, whereas someone like, here's another small guy, Donovan Mitchell. Oh yeah. You know, his dunks are all self-generated from the floor and all right, let's, let's move on to another category, shall we? Yeah. Let's get let's, serious. Let's, let's get <laughs> let's let's get serious um let's talk about uh oh this is another one this is another one near and dear to my heart let's talk about the best dynamic cutter in the league meaning meaning it's not a rote cut like that's part of it rote cuts meaning you're supposed to cut the play triggers a cut but I mean, we're playing in the flow of the game, and you got to make a read, and you got to cut into open space, you got to cut back door. Um, best cutter in the league. I don't know if he's the best, but the player I think about just because he doesn't really have other offensive skills. I think Matisse Thybul is secretly a good cutter. I think he he's done a good job with weak side. Harden's getting some attention. He's good at slipping in there to get a basket, basically because that's the only way he can get a basket besides getting a pick six type of steal. Uh, but I like Thibault for this category. Not as a winner, but as a, a person. Wait, wait. Oh, not as the winner of the category. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. no. Just like somebody that first came to mind here. Matisse, so, I want to shout him out. That was great radio. I got so confused by what you made. Because <laughs> Cody loves Matisse Thibault. And then and I do. And then I heard at the end, I'm like, I like Thibault here. He's not a winner. <laughs> and I was like, that's harsh. You've really, you've really turned your, your tune on him. Um, I think we have to, like a, like, you got to get it out of the way. You have to mention Steph Curry in this category, right? Yeah. Because just historically, he's the master of moving around and never stopping to move. And in, in a way, he almost needs to be like set aside. It needs to be like the non-Steph Curry version of this because traditionally he's so good at finding little creases and space and cutting out to the three-point line. So he, he was definitely one of the first guys that come, came to mind. Clay Thompson. Um, I'll, I'll throw another guy. I mean, God, you could do like half the Pelicans team, but Her- Herb Jones mm. is pretty good at this. I think from the Kings, Kevin Herter is pretty good at finding these little moments to cut back door and get into these little spaces and move around constantly and things like that. Um, who else you got? I, I, I feel like I, I feel like I'm going to pick a winner here in a second, but who else is on this category for you? Before I talk about a player, I just I wanna I wanna wax poetic about cutting a little bit because I think I think it gets it doesn't get the credit it should. I think cutting is a really difficult skill to master for a couple of reasons. For anyone out there that plays pickup ball, you probably know this. Like there are times you might be standing on the perimeter you see an opening into the free throw line, but your team has just been like on a three game winning streak. It's like seven, eight. You're like, man, I kind of secretly hope my team loses because I just need to sit down for a while. And you're just like, I just can't do it. 
I, I can't, I can see the opening, but I can't do it. I think that's what makes people like Steph Curry so incredible to me because he has this just unbelievable physical ability to just constantly run and know how to cut. So uh, I think I think we should we should promote cutting a little bit more in basketball because it's just such a skill that everyone on the team can have and it doesn't really encroach on everyone else. Uh, but the player that I, I would first think about, and it's one of those where like it helps because he's playing with the best player maybe ever to play with if you are a good cutter and that's Aaron Gordon. Yeah, Aaron Aaron Gordon from the Nuggets um a ton of like short space cuts. He doesn't necessarily have the out on the perimeter dart into open space, catch it and dunk it in one motion kind of cuts. It's more like I'm in the dunker spot and I take a step right and then oh Jokic wants me to go back door so I just kind of like take a couple steps and I put my hand out and the ball teleports into my left hand right past the right past the cornerbacks coverage. Um I I think that a lot of the Nuggets have that. KCP has that. Bruce Brown to some degree has that on that team. Another one for me we just talked about a Mikhail Bridges. Hmm. I think he's quite good at at feeling out open space. Cody, I'm going to get crazy. Ooh, I'm, I'm going to get crazy. In the spirit of this exercise, I don't know who to pick. So if I have to pick someone, I'm going to pick one of my favorite players to watch. He's a he's a sophomore in the league, so he's young and you think like being a veteran would help you with this. But man, when I watch him, he is so good at feeling little pockets to cut into, at timing his cuts, at cutting with just absolute ferocity, cutting cutting like a turbocharged machine. I'm talking about Quentin Grimes from the New York Knicks, 45 cut, baseline cut, backdoor cut, and he has a number of plays, especially in these really exciting close games that the Knicks always seem to play lately in the fourth quarter, where... He's cutting into pockets that are as dynamic and sort of freestyle as it gets. It's not a structured play. He's just like, oh my God, I threw the ball in bounds and then my guy's covered and I got to kind of like take a couple steps over here and then cut into this soft spot and then I can make an extra pass or something. Um, I feel like I'm open, but I'm getting overplayed. If I'm getting overplayed, why don't I cut back door? I cut back door that creates an opening, dish it off for a layup. There's just a ton of that from Quentin Grimes. And if I can't think of anyone else to pick in this category, I'm going to go with him. I really like that. He, To me, I actually just looked it up because I was going to guess that he's like 6'8". Because I feel like the ferocity with which he runs to the rim is like a 6'8 guy. Like, that's how he attacks it. But he's only like 6'5", which, you know, I mean, that's impressive. But I think the bigger you are, like if you're in that sweet spot of like a 6'8", 6'9", like Aaron Gordon, I think that helps a little bit because it's easier to throw down. It's easier to, to you have a wider catch radius when you're going. Uh, but if you're, if you're not going to, man, I think if I had to, Steph Curry feels like it's cheating. So I'm going to go with Aaron Gordon for my pick in this one. Yeah, Steph Curry definitely feels like he's cheating. Um Aaron Gordon has just had a had a ton of buckets this year from these kinds of plays. Okay, where do you want to go next? Ooh, um, let's say we have so Ben. Are we going to be here for like three hours? <laughs> no, we're only gonna, we only have a few more categories to do. We'll, we'll, yeah, we're making let's, our way through. Let's do uh, one of my favorites. One of my favorite player archetypes to talk about. Ben, uh, the best. Defense and dimes players in the NBA. The best players that excel at both being a good defender and being a good passer. 
Okay, so all I have to do here is I have to think of the players who are really good at playing defense and really good at passing. Yeah. Okay, so um, <laughs> isn't there a clear winner in this category? I think so. I mean, I think there's a few players. There's a couple players that are really high-level players on teams, but I think there's one guy that's probably I, just a standout. I mean, like Evan Mobley's a great defender, and he's also a pretty good passer. But if you just like think of that archetype, there are players who are better defenders and better passers. Yeah, that sounds right. But I, there's a couple guards, too, that I think sneak in here. And I think the guard version of the, the dimes, I haven't figured, what's the right order of it, Ben? Should it be defenses and dimes or dimes dimes and defense? I don't know. I don't okay. know. I, I, you tell me. All right. All of you scientists out there, hit me up. Do your stuff with your beakers and tell me what's the best way to, to figure out the dimes and defense variation. But I think the clear the clear winner for this is, is Draymond Green, right? Is that who you're thinking of? That's what I was thinking of as the clear winner, but I think you were inspired by the guards in this category who are Marcus Smart, Drew Holiday. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are others. I mean, this gets back to Rajon Rondo, right? Like mm-hmm. he was a he was a straight up pure dimes and defense kind of value guy. And I think what makes this category to me so valuable is you you know you talk about players that are able to scale up players that are able to fit into higher level teams and two skills that just no team can have enough of them are defense right you don't necessarily encroach on other players skill sets if you're a great defender and if you're a great passer if you're a great like uh what what, what's the term we use it low viscous passer where you get it and you immediately get rid of it that also helps to grease the grooves of uh, uh of an offense so you have guys like marcus smart for instance who if you have him at point guard, like traditionally, that's the player that like LeBron's going to call over in the pick and roll. It's like, hey, I'm going to attack your guy. You can't do that with Marcus Smart. You can't do that with Drew Holiday. So it shores up your defense so you don't have a weakness at the the usual weakest spot of your defense on your roster. But then you also have a guy that, even if they're not a great shooter, can fit in because they can help uh, move the ball around. Yeah, I buy that. I buy that. Can I shout um, out one more player? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So there's one player. I don't think he's quite a good enough passer to make it here. But he's he's close, and that's DeLon Wright of the Wizards. Every time I watch DeLon Wright, I mean, this guy is just just hounding dudes on defense, and he, he just makes the right pass. He makes a lot of basic passes, like getting into the, the free throw line and kicks it out for a three. Uh, he had a nice wraparound pass recently to, I, I don't know, probably Gafford, I think. Had a nice wraparound pass to him. Uh, but I think DeLon Wright should get more of a shout-out today. Okay, I did not see that coming. I did not have DeLon Wright... On my bingo card, I think as of now, the, the drinking game has been very limited today. I think we had one <laughs> one Steph Curry reference so far. Um, I, I We can't forget this category, so I have to do it right now. Mm. The best no-dip three-point shooter in the league. Cody, oh. who is it? Oh, to, For me, it's Nicholas Batum. Okay. It's, it's, it, to me, it's got to be Batum or Pat Connaughton. Oh, but, Pat's another good one. Yeah. And... and um, uh, Trey Murphy the third is also starting to no dip his threes, and he may be a better shooter than both of these guys. So if he gets the no dip down, it's over next year. When we come back, we're renaming this the the TM three uh, annual no dip award. What were you gonna say? Do you remember like decades ago, Ben? The the sports science clips that would when, pop up on ESPN decades ago was that when Kevin Durant was traded for. Yep. Uh, Mikhail Bridges to the Phoenix Suns. So this was like a week a week before that okay. when this this run. It would be like they would have that guy do the yes, sports. Yes, of course. Brink, yeah, Brinkus. It, it, yeah. 
Was that, was that, I, I had no idea what his name was. I don't but know. It was like, I may have just made up a name. Here's how much force James White generated when he jumped and, and dunked the ball. But like, I would love to see the sports science on the no dip because it like kind of doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't know how a player is able to catch and then just immediately shoot. Like, their their knees basically don't break. I would love to see how much like Nick Batum's knee actually breaks on these because I swear it doesn't work. It's like all calves, right? He's like Sean Marion, just like launching up with like a quick little little calf stretch. It's it, it's remarkable to watch the no dip. It's John Brinkus who used to do the sports science, uh, and I am shocked that you are not going with with Pat Connaughton. But I respect if you think Batum is a better shooter, uh, I think that's a respectable pick. I don't okay. know if he's a better shooter or if his no dip looks more fluid. Like to me, that might be the winner here. Yeah. Where Where do you want to go next? We got a few more to hit before we get out of here. Do you want to do something oh. fun and easy? Something oh. something hardcore. What do you want to get into? What's even hardcore left? You know, here's one oh, that I think... Some hard, there's some hardcore stuff left. I think I think this one's close to our heart. Um, what about, like, the best motor? Best motor. The best motor in the NBA. Uh, there's a lot of guys. A lot of... I don't know who to pick. I'm, let, me just, let me just say some names okay. that come to mind, okay? One of the GOAT candidates in the history of the league, J- yeah. Jared Vanderbilt... Yeah. Uh, for the Los Angeles. Did you see him last night for the Lakers? No. Tw- what happened? Well, you know, 12 points, eight rebounds, four assists, two blocks, 15 minutes. Why? 15 minutes. <laughs> why are you only playing 15, minutes? He should play 39, 45. He should play 50 minutes a game. That's my declaration. He, can he physically play that many? Like, is that the issue? Why not? Did you ever watch Dennis Rodman play? <laughs> But I mean, it's like Giannis. Like, I think there's a certain point where, like, you just can't play the guy more. Like, you're going to get diminishing returns. So I feel like there's two categories of human beings, and I'm glad we've landed on this. Uh, There's regular human beings like Steph Curry, where you're like, look at this person's cardiovascular performance. And then there's Dennis Rodman, who just has kid energy. And I'm sure if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not a parent, but, you know, all my friends. When you're a kid, it's just unlimited energy. And I feel like Dennis Rodman had that. Like, I don't even know if Dennis Rodman trained for cardiovascular athletics. He just, he's just like, I'm ready. I can't not move around the whole time. Vando gives me those vibes. Like when he's out on the car, that's Kevin Garnett. You guys really think Kevin Garnett was on the treadmill training his cardiovascular performance? No, he just couldn't sit still. He was just ready to go the whole time. The the Dennis Rodman high motor play, I'm sure, like, I'll say it and everyone, it just comes to mind. It's when he's fighting with Charles Barkley for a rebound on one play. And there's, like, probably seven tips in this entire sequence. Like, the ball bounces off and he's just getting his hand up there, tipping it up to himself. I don't ultimately remember how it ends. But when you watch that, like, the amount of energy he exerted there should have been enough to just, like, end anyone for the rest of the game. They're like, all right, coach, I'm done. Get me out of here. Vanderbilt gives me a little of those vibes. So yeah. I, I, I would like to see him play more another guy who gives me those vibes is jose alvarado um oh. has, has anyone ever seen him tired has it been confirmed that he sleeps at night <laughs> he's just like buzzing constantly he's just he's like oh, he's you know you know like the boogeyman he's always hiding behind your door that's him he's the boogeyman of the nba court I like Nick Claxton's motor, Cody. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of these high-end defensive players, unless they're a big drop, big kind of guy, are probably going to be uh, in this category. Same with, like, Matisse Thibel, Ben. 
But we can we can put it. How many how many times can he appear to get on the bingo card? So like Batiste Thibel, uh, I think Caruso is another one of these guys. Those like deflecting guards, maybe even like DeAnthony Melton, guys that are just kind of like all over the place and pestering you and you're dribbling the ball. Uh, oh man, Javon Carter for the Bucks, just like go full court press. You alone, you are the full court press. I think that takes an incredible amount of uh, motor to do that. Jalen Suggs, Ooh. KCP, other guys in that category. Um, have we not mentioned Quentin Grimes again? Quentin Grimes' motor is insane. He's constantly moving around on offense and defense. And when he catches the ball, uh, he, he does something interesting. Like, he goes so hard on his closeouts that it almost doesn't look like basketball movements. He's like a sprinter. <laughs> he, like, catches the ball and he's like a shot out of a cannon. Uh, who, do you, who would you pick here if you had to go with highest motor in the league? Would you go with Alvarado? I don't know. Vanderbilt's right there. Vanderbilt's too, right there. I'd pick one of those two guys. Did we, yeah. did we do this last year on the defensive awards? Did we do highest defensive motor? I think we did. Maybe. We can we can revisit that when we, when we talk about it later. Okay. Uh, Let's go with, for our next category, people are going to like this one. Let's go with best touch. Mm. Best touch. So when you say touch, are you meaning like around the basket, like yes. kind of floater range kind of thing? Yes, exactly. Best touch essentially around the basket, the dexterity, accuracy, softness, you know, mm. you're just making a lot of shots. The the net might splash a lot. You might not hit the rim. All these like little finishing flips and hooks and pushes and, and things like that. Best touch. I, I don't know, Ben. Is, is the answer just Jokic? Does Jokic just have the best touch in the NBA? I think it's Jokic. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Time it's, to drink. He could. He could. He could like toss a baby up there, and the baby would be like come out better than than before being tossed. I think that's yeah. how babies work. <laughs> that's how babies work. They're tossed <laughs> yeah. through baskets. Uh, have we reached that part of the show yet? <laughs> other other guys with great touch. Darius Garland has great touch. Trey Young, our guy Jalen Brunson, we just talked about. Lamelo Ball, I think, has really nice touch. Um, I actually think John Morant has pretty good touch. Yeah, around the basket. Who, who else? Well, Any, I think anyone? John Morant to analyze him a little bit. What helps his floater game a little bit is, especially if you're going against a drop big, you're so afraid of him getting to the rim that you're almost inviting him. So it's like it's like his athleticism and scoring and finishing ability opens up that whole range of the court because you're kind of okay with him taking that as opposed to just like yamming on you or, or throwing up one of his like hooking, loping finger rolls. Uh, I think Tyus Jones is secretly up here, the John Morant's backup. I just think maybe Tyus Jones takes a lot of floaters, but I feel like usually he's good at getting into the floater range and finishing. Josh Giddy, I don't know if that's a thing where his finishing ability isn't great because usually when I watch him, I'm like, Maybe you're settling for too many floaters here, champ. Like, maybe we could have done something else. But I think the people would say Josh Giddy. I don't necessarily know if I have him up at the top with the rest of these guys, though. Yeah. Shingun's another one. He's got pretty mm. good touch around the basket with both hands. I just think this is probably Jokic at this Do we point. say Jalen Brunson, though? Jalen Brunson we mentioned, yeah. Okay. We can mention him again. But yeah, Jokic. Jokic is the winner here. Yeah. Let's do, let's do, let's do one or two more. Pick, uh, pick one What what's happened? left here. What haven't we done? Let's say like uh, like a closeout attacker. Closeout attacker. Like yeah. you're in it. So you catch the ball. Someone's closing out at you. And then you are putting it on the deck and attacking that closeout. Best yeah. closeout attacker. 
Yeah, this um, is different from like the the you get a screen and you attack. Right. You get it off the catch and then go. Yeah. Uh, Jalen Brown comes to mind. Mm-hmm. He's good at this. Trey Murphy again, I think is quite good at this. Grimes is good at this. Same category of player. But there are some other guys that I think add a layer of skill here. Um, healthy Zach Levine would be a good example with the strides and the finishing and the size and the verticality. Donovan Mitchell, when he can get going downhill into space and then someone comes over, has that insane Euro step, that that low double cutback Euro step that's incredible. Um, for me... Well, you got you got a couple guys that you like, right? Yeah, I think this is something that separates Tyrese Maxey from some other players. And I think what's interesting about this category is it helps players that are actually in positions where they're able to get uh, an attack off the catch. And obviously playing next to Embiid and Harden, you're going to get that opportunity a lot. And I think Maxey is really good at just getting going because he's so quick that if you're not immediately there to stop him, he's just going to blow by you. So I think he takes advantage of that really well. I think Anthony Edwards... Secretly, I think he can sometimes fall in love with a, a triple threat or slow it down to go for a pick and roll. But when he attacks, just, you know, we talked about it before, unbelievable first step of explosiveness that you can't stay in front of him. I think Kyrie Irving, because once he gets going with his dribble, it's just nearly impossible to fully stay in front of him. So those are in front of him. So those are like the uh, three guys that came to mind for me as well. Man, I think those last couple are are really good because... Edwards physically, if we just talk about scoring and not passing and decision decision making, the combination of his first step, his burst as he as he takes that second step and gets into the paint, and then his size and his finishing that that vertical pop, um, he, it feels like he's just about as good as anyone. Going from that closeout moment, getting by the guy, and getting downhill. Um, if I had to include something like the passing dimension, which is an interesting thing to think about, then you get to a player like Kyrie, where I think he's more diverse at making a decision once he touches the paint on the closeout, kicking it out, lay down pass. Or, of course, he has such a diverse scoring arsenal himself because he can pull up at the elbow, he can go to the floater game, or he can get all the way to the rim and finish with the the, the acrobatics, if you will. So, man, now you're making this really hard for me to pick, to pick a winner, is there anyone we're forgetting that like you definitely would just be a slam dunk? Because that's what I need to pick a winner in this category right now. I mean, I'm sure we're missing a couple people, and the the fans of that team will angrily, angrily tell us about that. The thing about Kyrie, too, and it's interesting when you start thinking about how the other skills that a player has helps them. He's an all-time shooter, right? Some of these guys are also really good shooters. Kyrie, we talked about in the literal top 25 shooters of all time. So a player closing out has to keep that in mind. Because if you get too close to him, you're going to get burned. But you, if you don't get close enough, he's going to hit you with a with a catch-and-shoot jumper, which is just deadly for him. So I think that added layer might push him over the edge in my mind. I feel like I'm forgetting someone. I'm frustrated and I think the internet is going to tell us who we're forgetting here. I don't have, I can't pick. I have TBD okay. on this category. What about okay. you? Uh, I'm going to go with Kyrie. I'm going to go okay. with Kyrie. I think, I think from the players we talked about, that's a, that's a pretty good choice. Let's finish with everyone's favorite, the sexiest skill in basketball, something that dominates all of the highlight tapes that you've ever watched in your life, but you just don't realize it. Cody. Who's the best screen setter 
in the National Basketball Association. Screen setter. I think, man, the first guy that comes to mind from Steven Adams. Steven Adams just set some bone-crushing screens. And when you look at him historically, like, this is one of those secret dudes that when you look at his plus-minus, his on-off data, how teams perform, the Grizzlies have fallen apart, Ben, since Steven Adams hasn't been playing. They have. Maybe not fallen apart isn't right, but they're not as dominant. There's some kind of secret sauce to what Steven Adams does, and one of them is just set unreal screens. You don't think the other one is rebound and clean up, you know, offensive rebound, clean up around the basket, some occasional passing. I mean, those are all part of it, but I think they all fall into the same idea of like, he's one of the strongest players in the league and he knows how to use that physicality, right? It doesn't go to waste. Like he knows how to position his body where other players are going to get rebounds, where he's going to be in the way of defenders when he's setting a screen. He's going to know how to how to move that screen. Uh, I think Adams is my pick. Well, if you if you look at his impact numbers right now on our board that we share with subscribers, patreon.com slash thinking basketball, he's in the 90th percentile or higher <laughs> in a ton of categories. And I think we can agree that almost all of that value is from his screen setting. Can we not? <laughs> I like that. We're going to say that all of it comes from his screen setting. All of it comes from his screen setting. We're, we're joking, Memphis fans. We're joking. A um, couple other players in this category – Rudy Gobert, huge breadth and size on some of his screens. Demonis Sabonis is a really good screener in Sacramento. Uh, Jared Allen sets some solid screens. I actually think in Dallas, Dwight Powell, one of the things I think about with what actually makes you a good screener, and so we can we can get nerdy again here for a second. The timing, it's not just like bone crushingness, right? It's the timing and delivery of your screen. Where do you set it? Where do you stop? Do you get the low leg? Do you get the middle of the body? Um, Can you flip it? Can you change the angle of it? How fast do you get into it? How fast do you get out of it? And I actually think Dwight Powell's really good in some of those other categories without being a huge, jarring, bone-crushing screener. And I think that leaves me or leads me I should say, to the two guys that I would probably pick here. And that is Kavon Looney of Golden State, who has an incredible understanding of when to screen in the moment, how to screen, what angle to screen, how to flip the screen, and then bam on a bio in Miami. If we if we allow for the fact that probably somewhere between 90 and 99.9% of his screens are illegal, if we if we allow <laughs> if we allow for that and we just completely ignore it. Bam is so good at just crushing dudes with how he gets into his screens, flipping the screen, coming up and setting it um, a flat screen where his body is facing the baseline. He, he's he's a really good screener. So I would, for me, I'd probably pick one of those two guys. Even though Adams has the bone crushing screens, I I kind of feel like those two guys are right there in terms of the totality of. Creating value by, you know, setting the screen in so many different ways. Got a couple things to say. First of all, going back to Adams, when he's played this year in games that he's played, the Grizzlies have a net rating of plus five. When he doesn't play, they have a net rating of plus 1.5. So we can conclude that Adams by himself is worth, you know, like three and a half points per 100 possessions. Like that, that puts him in the, the top tier of players, obviously. Like no I disagree. Is- I disagree. I think that the only takeaway from that, well, how, how far into the show are we? We're over an hour. We can make jokes about science. 
I think the only takeaway from that at this point is that good screen setters are worth three and a half points per game or about 10 wins a season. You know, you could just get 10 wins a season from good screen setting. That's perfect extrapolation. The other thing I want to say is you talked about it's not all about bone crushingness. I mean, this is kind of the thing when teams just draft players that are really high, like have incredible physical traits. Like they can, they can put their head near the rim, right? They can run the quickest 40. They can cut really quickly. But what makes you the best in a certain category is when you can marry like the feel of using using these skills. You know, shout out to Evan Zaucha with his his feel article that he put out however many years ago that was. Um, but when you can combine that, like you combine the ability to be extremely strong. Bam Adebayo is a very strong person with knowing how and when to use it, how to time it out and use it on the court. That's what puts you up to this level because you can you can understand how to set a screen. But if you're like you know, if you're Trey Young, for instance, you're just not going to have that same sort of value. But you can at least be somebody like Stephen Curry, who ends up putting on some weight throughout his career and know how, knows how to set some screen. And he he ekes out a little bit more value for himself and his team by being a good screen setter. But again, to get into the top tier of this category, you have to have the physicality and the feel of how to use that physicality on the court. I know we've run a little long, but I think an interesting thing to reflect on the superlatives that we just came up with. What category do you think generates the widest range of value? What what skill that we just talked about actually differentiates? Like, if we had talked about best passers, to me, the difference between a god-tier passer in the NBA right now and someone who can't pass at all is like multiple points per game of value. Like, it's the difference between being an MVP and like a guy that might not even make an all-star team. As we talked about, you know, we had that Lowry market in discussion about him being so strong in particular areas. And then, um, I wouldn't even necessarily call him like super weak. He just doesn't, doesn't blip the radar like he does with his scoring. So you have these one dimensional players that can add value two dimensional players that can create value like a score and a passer, like a rim protector and a three point shooter. We talked about more esoteric things today, Cody. What what would be your pick for the thing that moves the needle the most when you think about the best guys in the league that we talked about and then people who just don't do this very well? I think I'm down to two right now, I think. One of them, I think you can get away with being a high-impact guy without being the best at this, but I think there are some guys that would have basically like no value in the league if they didn't have it. I think best motor, there's got to be a huge range of that. Like Jared Vanderbilt wouldn't be an NBA player if he wasn't a top tier motor guy. But I think my answer is probably cutting. Like I feel like, you know, a good cut in the NBA has to be one. It's probably the most valuable or the highest efficiency shot a player can get in a half court set is if you know how to perfectly time a cut, you're going to get a layup or a dunk out of it. That's like a 95% shot right there, right? Or even like Steph Curry getting his three-pointers off that. So I think my answer is cutting, but I think my second choice would be highest motor. What do you think? I, I love those answers. No, those are those are great points. Um, actually, you know, let us know in the comments what what you think, because it's an interesting th- it's an interesting thought experiment to me that I'm just thinking about right now for the first time. Traditionally, I have, like, I have a grasp on what I think the best screen setters are versus the weakest screen setters. But when you start to chop the game up in these different areas, the one that jumps out to me is touch. Because if you didn't have that touch, I think we can confidently say it would shave some volume and efficiency off of your scoring totals. 
So in the case of Jokic or whatever, if he's 27 plus 13% relative to the league, if he's 70% true shooting, then without that touch, he would be maybe like, what do you think? Like 25 plus eight or whatever the math comes out to, because the, all that, that, that arsenal of shots he uses around the basket, you're going to spit out more misses. And frankly, a player like him might not shoot him quite as much if, if he's not as confident they're going in. He's an extreme example, but even with someone like Darius Garland, uh, Brunson, the Trey Youngs of the world, I think if you scale back their touch, you scale back their scoring. Scoring is such a critical value driver in the game. So I don't know what that answer would be, but that's that's where my head goes is maybe touch. But I think your points about um, cutting and especially motor are also really sound where if, if you just look at it from that perspective and you like you make this guy a low motor player, he loses a lot of the opportunity to make impact. The impact plays that someone like Jared Vanderbilt makes offense, defense, cutting. I mean, my goodness, Jared Vanderbilt offensive rebounding is out of control. He's such a good offensive rebounder. If you were to take his motor and give him a 10th uh, percentile motor, excuse me, versus like a 99th percentile motor, yeah, I think that would strip a lot of his value as well. So I, I, I like those answers. This is really interesting to think about. And to your point about touch, and I'm not saying this to trash the guy because he's he won an MVP at one point, but if you imagine like Russell Westbrook in terms of, of touch, right? Like he was able to finish at the basket because he's just incredible athleticism. Like he can just teleport to the basket and he's there and he could throw it down on people. But his finishing relative to how quickly he got to the basket could have been even better. And if you even look at the floater range, that's bleeding a lot of, of efficiency. So when you talk about Westbrook and inefficiency, it's not even necessarily like, oh, he takes a lot of threes and misses him. No, when he gets to the basket, basket like you think about these smooth finishers like Shea Gildas Alexander, John Morant, uh, Darius Garden like you said even like Kyrie Irving they have this ability to just kind of like kiss it off the rim and like you don't marry the ideas of Russell Westbrook and kissing the ball off the glass to go in right it's kind of just like a, a ramming it in there and and when you have to say to a guy like I wish you could slow down just a little bit that's probably a good way to it's a good proxy to say that you're not necessarily a a uh, haven't got a, a lot of touch on your finish. To support this show and everything we do, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That's where we have our daily updating stats board throughout the season for players and teams. If you can't tell, uh, we, we use it to research these shows and videos all the time. Ton of impact stats, shooting stats, um, it drives on and on and on. I can't even remember off the top of my head. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We, we apologize for running a little long on this one today, but it was a lot of fun. And um, hopefully you guys can let us let us know all kinds of players we're forgetting, potential other categories or superlatives you want us to talk about. We can dive deeper potentially into some of these things in the future. I think I think I just potentially said potentially three or four times in one sentence. That means it's time to to end the show. Thanks for listening all the way to the end, as always. And of course, wherever you are listening, I hope you're having a great day.